Tonight, if you have a Bible, we're in John 15 tonight. We're going to begin in verse 12 and read through verse 17, a short little section in John uh, 15. It's kind of in between uh, two larger conversations. Um, The title of the message tonight is Fruit and Fish, probably because I couldn't think of a better title, but it talks, uh, our conversation will begin about around fruit and it will end around fish. Two things that go great together, right? Uh, Of course, Um, I I wouldn't know, right? But John 15, uh, now last time, two weeks ago, we talked about the very famous and important words of Jesus found in John 15 verses 1 through 11, specifically the first six verses where Jesus talks um, about this uh, beautiful picture and this description um, of our relationship with God in comparison to an olive vineyard or an olive branch or a grape vineyard. Um, We hear Jesus use these two fruits uh, to talk about what it means to know God throughout the Gospels. He uses them interchangeably. Um, But he says that famous uh, line, I am the vine, you are the branches, you can abide in me and I abide in you. And we kind of talked last time. We kind of broke down um, this dichotomy that uh, is really simple and, and basic, um, you know, study of, of plants and, and, and so forth. Uh, but we talked last time about this uh, dichotomy of vine to branch to fruit, that there is a process, there is a flow, right, from the vine to the branch that produces fruit. And that's really the whole, conver- whole goal of this conversation. Um, and, and something that's really underscored, uh, and we often underscore about this picture and this really metaphor that Jesus gives us, um, and, and it's going to set us up for tonight's scripture. If you're a fruit fan, and who isn't, right? Um, I, I like bananas, sometimes grapes, but that's about it. But I'm sure most of you are more healthy than me and are more interested, are more open to other fruits. I guess I eat olives on um, sometimes on pizza, right? I don't. I take them off. Um, I was thinking about mushrooms, but that's not a fruit. That's something else completely. Um, but we often underscore something. The, really, the main point of this conversation: um, if you like grapes or olives or bananas or whatever, uh, you couldn't care less about the vine or the branch, could you? I mean, right, you don't care about the vine, you don't care about the branch, you don't care about the trunk, um, you don't care about the roots or the stem, you just care about the fruit, right? Now, follow me, I'm not underscoring Jesus because he's the vine, right? And we make a big deal about Jesus because, of course, he's Jesus, right? We talk about the vine, and, of course, the branch is important, that's us, and Jesus says we're important, so we bring a lot of attention to the vine and the branch, And it's really odd that the least talked about part of this analogy is the most important or the most, you know, focused on and the most desirable part, right? I mean, what gives a vineyard, what gives a a plant its distinction? What is the defining feature of any plant? It's fruit, right? Again, not to underscore the vine, it's very important. Not to underscore the branch, it's very important. But the whole idea, the the whole point of this conversation is about the fruit. Because you don't eat the vine, you don't eat the branch, you eat the fruit. And the, the purpose of the vine and the purpose of the branch is to produce fruit. Now, remember, Jesus is the one teaching, so I don't think I'm overreaching with this. He sets this up as God being the gardener, himself being the vine, us being the branch that produces the fruit. So the fruit is the main attraction, right? You go into the grocery store and there's a whole section that has a sign over it that says fruit or produce, right? But you get the idea. We don't give any attention to the vine or the branch because that was just a means to an end. It's the fruit that Jesus 
is actually most interested in. And of course, him being the vine, we should listen if he's deferring the attention to the fruit. Now, obviously, he's important. He's made clear that we are important. But Jesus' main goal with this teaching is to show us what God is really interested in. This whole chapter chart starts off by saying the father is the vine dresser. He's the husbandman. He's the one who tends to the garden. And why did he plant the, 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 why did he plant the vineyard? Why is he tending to the vineyard? Because he wants to see some cool vines? No. Because he wants to see some nice branches? No. And again, those are important. But why did he start the vineyard to begin with? To bring forth fruit. So I say all of this to say that all of this is meant to send one very clear and very important message. That we are created and we are saved to bear fruit that glorifies God. And what glorifies God? When we bear much fruit. That is what this chapter is all about. That's what the first eight verses specifically are all about. Verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. Now, people talk all the time about what brings glory to God, and we can have a, have a whole series of sermons about bringing glory to God, and it'll be a different conversation every time. But Jesus says here, very specifically for us, very clearly for us, what glorifies God when you, when we bear fruit. Now let it be known that Jesus makes it clear in verse 11 that bearing fruit is the only way for us to find true joy. So even more important for us to pay attention to this. He says in verse number 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you that your joy may be full. So he's telling us that this isn't out of mere slavish service. That he's telling us because this is what we want. This is what our souls desire. It's what makes us joyful. And sin prevents us from seeing that sometimes. But we will not be satisfied in life unless God is glorified by our lives. If you ever wonder, and I know sometimes we beat ourselves up and we shouldn't do that, but if you ever wonder why are you not satisfied, and if you're really doing some soul searching and you're looking at your life, if your life is not being lived to glorify God, then you will never be satisfied. John Piper is famous for saying just that. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. So this isn't just about us being doing it out of duty. It's about us doing it because our joy is on the line. We, that we may have a desire in our hearts, and we do have a desire in our hearts, that delights in seeing God lifted up because we bear His image and we desire to share His goodness. You were created in God's image. And you are only satisfied as an image bearer when you share His goodness. Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has set the world in our hearts and we will not be satisfied with mere things of this earth. The most fulfilling job, the most bountiful riches, the greatest, the, 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 all the awesome family and friends will not satisfy your heart and your soul like living for your Creator. And does it, does it entail all those things? Of course, in some ways, all the more. But what specifically brings glory to God, what satisfies your soul, is living in a lifestyle that produces fruit for God. In Psalms 92, you should go read that one. It says that God makes us glad 
And we know that only in Him can we ever find true gladness. Now, there may be some pushback on this from the world, from our own hearts. But when we understand where we come from, we understand why this is the only way we can choose to live that brings us true joy. Listen, we were lost and undone, broken and stained by sin, weren't we? And if you're saved tonight, you know this, that you were lost, undone, broken, and stained. And Jesus came and washed you and made you whole. And if you've experienced that conversion, that's why conversion is so important. That's why that we don't just kind of stumble into faith. Or we don't just kind of, well, I'm interested in it one day and I just kind of showed up. That's why there's a conversion. That's why there's a, hey, I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. I was way away, but now I'm close. God saved me. That's what salvation is all about. Going from a place of sin to a place of saved, right? To a place of being made whole. You were broken and now you're put together you were undone and now you're made new and part of that process we've understood that God's spirit has come to us us as we were desolate and devastated by sin he has restored us and he has adopted us into God's family so now you know this as a Christian but come on just think back through this you were outside of God's family you were lost you were most likely doing some things you weren't happy about even as a Christian if you've stumbled back into sin you know this right because what your salvation always brings you back when you understand that God has come to you as desolate and devastated as you may have been by sin, He's come to you, He accepts you, He restores you, He's adopted you, you understand there's no better way to live. There's no other way to live in joy and in peace because you know what it's like apart from God. And now that you're in the family, there's nothing better. So through this transaction, really this transformation, we realize there is no joy outside of Jesus. No joy outside of Jesus. Just as there is no life outside the Lord. Now we make a big deal about how there's no life outside of the Lord. That's absolutely true. But it's not wrong to say, and it's very true to say, there is no joy outside of Jesus. Am I saying that we can't find joy in the world? Of course I'm not saying that. He made the world. He gives us things in the world to find joy in. But those things are all there because of Him. And we understand why He put them there, why He has given them to us, and we never separate that from Him. And the day we do is the day we lose the joy. So we understand there is no joy outside of Jesus. There's no life outside of the Lord. What glorifies Him, what bears fruit for Him is what brings joy to us. So thus, we desire to bear fruit. We realize this is not an option for us. It's our obligation, but not out of duty again, but out of our new nature. Again, we talked about this last week. Plants don't work to produce their fruit, do they? Plants don't start sweating every morning because they don't know if they're going to produce fruit. They're at the mercy of nature. They're at the mercy of elements they don't control, right? And of course, things can make it hard on them, but the plants just sit there. Literally, they're stuck there, and they're just hoping that the sun shines and the rain comes and that whoever taking care of them clips away what isn't, it doesn't need to be there and what might make it hard on them. They're just hoping that everything works out. It's the nature of the plant and the nature that the plants around and within that produces the fruit. Plants don't strain. Plants don't sweat. Plants just do what plants do, and that's produce fruit. It's a nature 
thing. It's natural for plants. So just the same, in our new nature as a Christian, the fruit should come. Of course, it's not natural because we're supernaturally saved, right? But we're, the new nature brings this and we find our true joy and delight by being a part of this process. Now I want to read the, uh, verse 12 through 15. Jesus is going to remind us what the main fruit of a Christian should be. So we've kind of talked about how we should bear fruit, but what is the fruit? What is the specific fruit? We can talk about many different fruits, but he says there's one main fruit. You're not going to be surprised what it is. And while many other attributes may indeed stem from being the Christian, being a Christian, one thing remains the most important and the most glorifying. And I want to talk about why that is tonight. So John 15, verse 12 through 15, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus, have you not said that before? In fact, I've said it several times in this very same conversation. Chapter 13, he says it a lot. Chapter 14, he says it, right? He says it again. This is my commandment, that you love one another. So don't you think, I mean, this is a hunch. If he repeated himself that much, here's, the, here's, the, here's the, what I learned. When you're a teacher, and I'm kind of a teacher, I do this, but I talk to real teachers who do this, who teach in schools, and God bless them because it's a tough time right now for them. But teachers repeat things for two reasons. Because they know their kids need to know it, and they know their kids are prone to forget it, right? So why do you repeat things? Because we need it, and we're likely to lose it. So when you combine those two, that necessity and that propensity, the necessity for it and the propensity to lose it, you understand why it needs to be repeated. So Jesus repeats himself, and he's not done repeating himself. Verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that they would lay their life down, for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. What has he commanded us to do? It's not that difficult, right? Love one another. No longer do I call you servants, for servants do not know what their master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things I heard from my father I have made known to you. And what has he made known to us over and over and over again? That the true and the ultimate fruit of a Christian is to love one another. How? As I have loved you. What is his love all about? He laid his life down, or he's going to lay his life down for his friends. So, I don't think it's overstating to say this. Love is the quintessential fruit of a Christian. Love is the trademark fruit of a Christian. Now, it's a very specific type of love, and I think we should talk about that. In Greek, there are several words for love. And I'm not an expert, but I can read it a little bit. In Greek, there are several kinds of uh, words for love. There's the word eros, where we have heard an English version of that. Eros speaks of romantic love, a romantic affection. Uh, storge speaks of family affection. It, it speaks of that family unit, that family bond that is natural within the household, right? Uh, you, you want to kill each other one day, but you're you know, hanging out and loving each other the next day. This is what you do, right, as a family. Uh, and there's philia, or philios, which is friendship. It's companionship. It's the bond between two, uh, uh, brother, between two people, two friends. But this is not that kind of love. 
It's not romantic love that is about feelings, and thank God it's not based on feeling. It's not family affection that is kind of natural, or it's kind of just part of, well, you know, I was raised in it. It's not just a friendship that's, you know, kind of buddy-buddy, hey, what can you do for me, and what can I do for you? It's bigger than that. It's agape. Agape is a word that means sacrificial, a sacrificial longing and devotion. A, a, A very deep, and selfless kind of love that is rare to be found in the heart of a person. And even in the Greek fables, the gods did not have love for people, but they would never have this kind of love for people. But the Jewish God, the one true God, His message to the world was, very, was this very love. God's love is described as this word agape, different forms of it, which means unconditional love, preferential love that is chosen and acted out by the will. It's not love based on the goodness of the beloved or a feeling for the beloved. It's, based on, it's not based on natural affinity or emotion. It's benevolent love that always seeks the good of the beloved. It's a selfless, sacrificial longing and devotion that is really too good for this world. And that's what Christian love is. Christian love is agape love. Selfless, outpouring, others first, one anothering kind of love. Philippians 2 says we should esteem others better than ourselves. That's what this kind of love is all about. That's what glorifies God. This is the fruit that we ought to be producing as believers. Verse 12 and 13 tells us that and defines what it looks like. Verse 13 literally is the definition of sacrifice, right? Verse 14 and 15, Jesus signals what will bring ultimate approval from God, what pleases God when we love one another. We are considered friends of God. Now, we talk about this a lot. It's kind of the main subject of the Bible, after all. God's love for us and God's love through us. Pretty easy and simple enough, right? The Old Testament tells a story. The New Testament finishes that story of God's love for us. And the epistles reiterate this message and tells us it's important for us to show that love through our lives. So I want to close by talking about the purpose of loving one another. Because I think we can parse out a fourfold way... A fourfold way that shows loving one another accomplishes God's will and brings glory to God. I think there's four ways that loving one another in this unconditional, others first, one anothering kind of way, a fourfold way that shows that loving one another brings glory to God. Number one, loving one another values everyone like God does. John 3, 16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that He did something for the world, that He gave something to the world. Undeserving, right? God loves the world. He loves people. He values people. This is so hard for us to understand. And I understand. I'm a person. I'm a sinner. I see through grungy eyes, and I have slimy motives, and I'm awful, awful, awful. It's hard for me to understand this, and I have a hunch it's hard for you to understand this some days. God values everybody. Everybody. It's hard to not put an asterisk on everybody, I know. But who did Jesus die for? The world. Why did he die for the world? Because he values 
the world. Because where did the world come from? Him. He values everyone. Not because we have done or can do anything for Him. Make this very clear in your heart. God values everyone, not because we have done or can do anything for Him, but because He made us and He wants to know us. So why does God value everyone? He made them and He wants to know them. And no sin can make God ever not want to know someone. And that's hard for us to even comprehend. Because sin makes us not want to know someone, right? Sin makes us want to turn away from someone, right? Sin makes us want to build walls and separate from someone, right? He made us and wants to know us. So we need to remember that when we have a choice to love or not, when we consider, when we consider what we should consider them or if we should consider them above ourselves or not, or if we should be selfish in how we treat or make decisions that will affect them, we must consider that everyone is valuable to God. We, tr- we are to treat everyone with value for their sake. For their sake. Well, what if they don't even know who God is and don't love God? It doesn't matter. God loves them, so we value them for their sake. Even if we don't like them, even if they don't love God, we value them because God values them. They're valuable, so we value them for their sake. There there are no outs on this. There are no excuses for this. Biblically speaking, everyone deserves to be shown they are valuable. They matter to God. They may not respond, but some part of that sin-marred soul needs to feel its worth. And we need to be the one that shows it to them. Whew, that's a whole sermon for a whole other day. We need to do that for 30 minutes, not for five. But we've got to move on. Verse, number two, we love one another to show God's love. This is different than value because we just value, we love people just because they're valuable, but we also do it with a very specific purpose. To show God's love. Remember, Jesus said, By this they'll know that you are mine. If you love. We love to demonstrate God's love. We love for their sake, but we also love for God's sake, for the, lo- for the sake of love. We really don't need any more reasons, do we? We love for their sake because they're valuable. We love for God's sake to demonstrate His love. The cross is too important for us not to pass its message forward. Why did Jesus die? Because God so loved the world. So I want to show you how God loved the world by giving up His life for it. Number three. This is more practical. We love by avoiding sinning with and or against. Now, a lot of times we talk about sinning against, but I think it includes sinning with, and here's why. We love by avoiding sinning with and avoiding sinning against others. Love does not and cannot wrongfully use or abuse others. Even if others are consensual. Because love says, I can't make you do anything or I can't do anything to you that devalues you. Love considers what's best for the rest so it can never choose sin. This is why it's so important and so heavy to be a Christian. Because you know what's a sin and and not a sin, and some people don't. And you might can lock arms with somebody who doesn't know, 
And you might be the reason they are involved in something and you as a Christian might lead them down a path that ultimately hurts them. You, we know better. So we can't wrongfully use or abuse others. We consider what's best for the rest so love can never choose sin. Again, all these are sermons in and of themselves. One day maybe. Number four. We love for a very specific cause. We love to make disciples. We don't hide our motive. We are on a mission to make disciples for the kingdom of God. That is what brings God the utmost glory. Now let me just say this. You're not going to make disciples if you don't value people. People are not lab rats. You don't hold somebody down and stick a needle in them and say, hey, this is going to give you what you need, right? That's not how you win Christians. Some people may have tried that in the past. It didn't work. I'm right, you know, seven minutes to be a Christian. That didn't work, right? They might have repeated a prayer, but you got to genuinely love people, value people. you got to show people love. And listen, you're not going to win somebody to Jesus if you're sinning against them, right, of course, or sinning with them. We love to make disciples. That's what brings God glory. If we aren't sharing the gospel, if we aren't sharing Christ, we are not truly loving one another. Now, here's the thing. I'm not suggesting that if we withhold the gospel, we're not loving them. I'm not saying that if we withhold the gospel, that, that, that we withhold the gospel because we don't love somebody. That's, you know, of course, that's, you, know, you don't not tell your coworker about Jesus because you hate them. We don't tell people about Jesus because it's awkward, right? I mean, it's uncomfortable, it's messy, it makes things just kind of tense, and we don't think it's our place, we don't think it's necessary, we just pray that God would show them who Jesus is like He showed us. But I have a hunch, you didn't receive revelation from heaven about Jesus, did you? Most likely, you know about Jesus because somebody told you about Jesus, right? And you know why they told you about Jesus? Because they loved you. You remember how Jesus kick-started this whole movement when he first recruited disciples? Remember what he said? Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, they followed him because he gave them a boat full of fish. They weren't considering about fishing for men. They just followed him because he gave them stuff. Made them feel good. But he said, y'all are following me because eventually I'm going to make y'all something. You know why at the end of the Gospels, you don't ever hear this brought up again. The disciples don't sit in a room and say, we've got to go tell the world about Jesus because he told us he was going to make us fishers of men. By the end of the Gospels, and when the church begins, they rarely discuss this verse. You know why? They were motivated to go and tell the world about Jesus. And here's what was so subtle about Jesus' statement. They didn't sign up to become fishers of men. They just realized they had no other choice. Because they remembered a world before Jesus. They remembered their lives before Jesus. And they couldn't imagine knowing what they knew, knowing who they knew, and keeping it to themselves. There's a story I reference a lot in the Old Testament. There are four lepers who were thrown out of the city of Samaria because they were unclean. Around this same time, the city was besieged by Syria, and the city was starving, and conditions were worsening very quickly. People were dying. And these four lepers were living in the outskirts in between the Syrian army and the city gates. The city gates would not let them come back in because they were cursed. And the Syrian army seemed ominous, and they were too scared to go near the Syrians. One day, the Syrian army drew back to get some more supplies, and the lepers thought, 
we should go check on what they're checking on. And maybe, maybe, why don't we go and see what's going on? And what if we were to surrender to the Syrians? And maybe we can tell them, hey, we can show you how to sneak into the city. We can help y'all get in because they don't care about us. And why don't we help y'all finish them off? I mean, if we go back and try to re-enter on our own, they're going to stone us. In worst case scenario, if you don't accept our surrender, we just become your slaves or you just tell us to buzz off. But if we stay in the wilderness, we're going to die. So we have nothing to lose. So the Syrian, or, so these four lepers hobble along in the desert and they realize the camp has moved farther and farther out and they find the Syrian camp and it's been empty because the Syrian army has retreated into the distance because they heard some noises and were scared. So these four lepers enter the camp and they find all of the splendor and spools they could ever imagine and they drink and they eat and they party all night long and they begin to pack up stuff in wagons to go and hide it. For themselves. And then day starts to break. And these four worldly, carnal men feel something in their hearts they'd never felt before. They couldn't explain it, but they couldn't deny it or get away from it. This moral obligation came over them. And they say, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. Even though they threw us out, we've got to tell them because this news is too good to keep secret. They remembered how fortunate they were to have these blessings and now that they and knew they could not keep it to themselves. So Christians... This is God's commandment, that you love one another as He has loved you. You know why we love? You know why we go and make disciples? Because we were all fish once. We were all lost, but now we're found, and we cannot keep this good news to ourselves. Love won't let us. Because the love that God has shown us and is moving through us bids us to move towards and show others. Jesus calls us His friends because we're His partners in this ministry and on this mission. He says in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I have chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, and whatever you ask in the name of my Father, He may give to you. These things I command you that you love one another. I have appointed you and I have chosen you to bear fruit. And the ultimate goal is to make disciples. And if you ask Ask God to help you do this. He will do it. I mean, yeah, we love for the sake of love. But make no mistake, we are on a mission to make disciples. So let's not fail this mission. Jesus said this is the core to our being a Christian. And it could be that what we're missing inside that what we wonder why we can't be satisfied by this world is that we've ignored this great commandment. And maybe we value people. Maybe we show people God's love. Maybe we don't sin with or against, but maybe we haven't taken that next step to make. Disciples, as 
The power of God comes from God through Christ to us, through us unto others. That's the fruit that God is looking for that we should bring forth every day. There's no joy outside of bearing fruit, and there's no fruit outside of sharing love. And I'll leave you with this. We love because He first loved us. Pretty simple. Pretty clear, isn't it? Let's go out and show the world. Let's tell the world. And let's bring fruit into the Father's house. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for your love. For the love that you've shown us that we did not deserve, but you didn't ask it, ask anything from us in return. Thank you, Lord, for the goodness that we've been blessed with and the spirit that moves through us. May we go into our world. May we go into our relationships, to our workplaces. Lord, to our enemies. Let us value and show them that they matter to you, that you love them, that we love them. Help us to deny our flesh and our selfish instincts and help us to seek their good to the point and ultimate goal of making disciples and bringing more people into God's family. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for choosing us and appointing us. We don't deserve it. But since we've been given this privilege, may we make the most of it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.